go. Well, there we go on another day with our familiar Alvin Lee lyrics. It is a Friday, of course, always an interesting show, one I look forward to, to every week, really. Uh, and let's see, I'll get you right back in a second here, Chris. And, of course, I got our uh, uh, Friday co-host on, which would be one Mr. Brent Allen Winters. Roger Sales with you, Radio Ranch, name of the program. Uh, People's Patriot Network, our venue. And as I said, it's the 1st of March. We've made it through February. And uh, beware the Ides of March, Brent. Oh, yeah. Roger, I've been listening to your show a little bit. I'd like to listen when I can, just to, just so much to, so many snakes to kill during the week that I don't get to it like I want to. But I notice there are some listeners that uh, come on during the week that I'm not familiar with because they don't come on Friday. And so I have to conclude, Roger, that I'm saying something they're not comfortable with. But I don't know that. Well, I'm just concluding well, with speculation. Maybe it's that they want to hear everything you've got to say and don't want to interrupt or impede anything. Well, it could be that, too. I don't know. But uh, I'm glad that people are participating. Of course, uh, we have our regulars here on Friday that like to pipe in. I found out that people on the radio, when you're on the radio, there are people that uh, they they want to listen to you sometimes, but some of them don't want you to know they're listening. For different reasons, who knows why. But I recall uh, when I began to do regular radio, and then I was, as a lot of people in radio are, you're thrown off. Uh, you know, it's a brutal business to be in, even if you're doing it for free. And I've always done it for free. And I had a nice show for a while, three-hour drive time. And I found out later the fellow that put me on what he really wanted. He wanted me to get on, and he wanted certain people to start listening because they were comfortable with me. And then he would have a certain amount of those hooked into the station after he threw me off, which he did. And um, but it he he had a habit of doing that, constantly bringing in different people, for, and then he'd get rid of them. And what it would do, of course, keep things lively. I understood what he was doing, and it wasn't a bad idea on his part. But uh, that's the brutality of the business. If you're tied in and somebody's trying to make a living off of it, which he was, he'd been in radio for seventy years. Oh my goodness. Uh, he, he was acclimated from the time he was 16 years old. He went on the air in uh, Vincennes, Indiana, back before World War II. And then uh, he went to the war as a young fellow. Then he came back and went to engineering school there at uh, Rose Technological Institute in Terre Haute. And then he, and back then he told me, I learned a lot from him, but he told me that back then, if you could get a license to open a radio station, it was a gold mine. Yep. And he made a lot of money, but he didn't make money, Roger, until the early 1960s. And I remember I'd ride the school bus, and he was in that group of men that opened up radio stations, the first stations that were opened in little towns. Before that, the only stations were in the big cities, KXOK in St. Louis and WLS in Chicago and, and uh, WSM in Nashville and WWL down in New Orleans. Uh, those were the only ones, but then the FCC changed the rules, and uh, our little town, he opened up a radio station in our little town, 
And he about went broke, and they shut the power off to him two or three times. I remember all those things growing up. But then finally, he had a disc jockey on there that put on a, a country western uh, song, a country western record. I forget which artist it was, uh, Patsy Cline or somebody. And uh, Stand, he, he stand by your man. Yeah, and all that <laughs> Whatever it was. Well, before that, he was playing cheap rock and roll. I remember every morning at a certain place on the school bus. Of course, we had a radio station then, a little tiny town. And so the school buses were always playing his stuff. I'd get on in a certain place. We'd get over by Bob McComas's house, just to the south of it, and he'd always play the same song. It was Green Tambourine. You know? Yes, yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. He wasn't making any money. And finally, he played that country western song, and people started calling the station. And he said, well, let's get a few more records. He said he bought more records. Then he attended the conferences down in Nashville and met all the famous people. And he made a fortune with country western music. Is that right? Yeah. And that, you know, it didn't come in until after World War II, and then it didn't really get going until the 1960s. But then it became fashionable, and that one uh, phenomenon, more than any other phenomenon, uh, made the language, the, the, the dialect of America, uh, the same. Uh, and the Scotch-Irish dialect, as it had developed in the southern Appalachian Mountains, with country-western music coming to Nashville, which was, of course, a little bit west, and then spreading out, it overtook the country, and that's why we speak the dialect we speak today. Well, you know, uh, I was very fortunate. Chris, I welcome Chris there. He's sitting in the background. For me, did you hear the, I went into a little bit yesterday on the history and development of FM and the way that the two AM and FM uh, modules split and all that stuff. Did you happen to uh-huh. hear that? No, I no, I didn't hear that one, Roger. Well, it's pretty interesting. I just went over it yesterday, I think, so I, I hate to regurgitate it again, but it is it's pretty interesting history. Um, uh-huh. And uh, I can really relate to what you're saying. And I can remember, I, just, I had a father that was very musical. He played clarinet in the high school band and marched in the Orange Bowl parades and all that stuff. So I was always indoctrinated to music my entire life and but he liked all kinds and and he loved Ernest Tubb and Hank Williams and yet he loved uh, classical music you know so I had a, a total introduction to all types of music when I was young but what I remember more I think distinctly than anything else so I had this music in me and around me and then I found radio with transistor radios in the late 50s when I was uh-huh. 10 years old or something like that and I can remember we were living in Clovis, New Mexico, and right oh. across the border from Texas there for about five years. And yeah. I can remember laying in bed at night with a transistor radio under the pillow, listening to KOMO in Oklahoma City, and whoa, man, Jack in Del Rio, Texas, you know, in those days. Uh-huh. And uh, so I had a fascination and an indoctrination to it from the time I was 10 years old or younger, you know, and it's just interesting to me the way my life's path has uh, revolved around it. I wasn't always in it, but if I wasn't in it directly, I was adjacent to it in my whole career path. So uh, here towards the end, and we have our own little platform here, and we got a a tremendous nugget of knowledge and truth and a wonderful core audience of people that have realized that this is the significance, or at least realizing the significance of it, and then the spirituality and the insight and history that you bring to the table on all these things is a gel that's been 
happening every Friday for, I guess, about four or four, four years now or something, Brent. It has been now about four years, I think. I remember where I was when we started. I used to be there on the west side of Terre Haute. And uh, now I'm in a little bit different place. But, yeah, I remember that, where, where we were. And I, I thought at that time, Roger, how this is technology. Would the audience enjoy watching us while we talk? I'm sure that we could arrange that to happen if we wanted to. Yes, we probably could. It's been discussed. A lot of people do it. But, you know, my problem is I'm a purist. Uh-huh. And I understand that radio in its purity is the theater of the mind, and that's its power. People can oh, you be, make an excellent point. Yeah. People can be deceived on video. Look at films. You know, I mentioned it the other day, Steven Spielberg's quote from years ago, 30 years ago or so, uh-huh. Dallas uh-huh. Morning News, they were interviewing Spielberg, and he made a uh-huh. comment in there, and he said, celluloid is the world's most powerful weapon. Yeah, oh, I think no question, because it's idolatry by definition. By definition, it's images. And uh, God said to the folks of Israel, I'll spit this out quick, and then you're, don't forget what you're going to oh, say. Oh, I'm not. Uh, okay. Um, God said to Israel when uh, Moses went up on the mountain and received the ten davarims, the first principles, uh, he said to him later when uh, Moses was on the mountain, you didn't see any similitude. You didn't see me. I didn't show myself to you. You, were, you heard only the sound of a voice. And therein lies the great key to power. Um, Spielberg and the evil empire, to him, idolatry is the most powerful weapon. And that's true because all of the godless evil empire lives on idolatry in all of its forms. But uh, our God, our maker, says faith in him, trust in him, comes by hearing. And hearing by the things, the davarim again, of God, the arranged word. That's what that really means, davarim, the arranged words. Not just the words of God, but the arranged words. And that's what he calls the ten first principles. He said the, these are the ten davarims, the ten arranged matters, the ten first principles. And it's a matter of words. And it, if there's uh, images involved, the, the mind goes into neutral and follows the emotions that the images, especially moving images, um, can uh, foster inside of us, in our innards. And that's why, of course, in common law trials, there are certain things that are not allowed. For example, there are certain pictures that the judge, if he's following the rules of evidence, won't let into before the jury because images tend to put the mind out of motion. And we recognize that in our own law, moving pictures especially, gruesome pictures in murder cases. Every prosecutor Every prosecutor I've ever met, they want in the worst way to get the ugliest pictures in front of the jury yep. of the defendant. Uh, get him in an odd position, to find a picture of him, and then work hard to find a way under the rules of evidence to get that in front of the jury because they know that's more powerful by far and away than the words, Roger, I, did you forget what you were going to say? No, not at all, Brent. And it's, it, and it's <laughs> wonderful that you went into that because it just really furthers my conviction of what we're doing and my my understanding of it is a little bit different bent or at least my uh outward description of it here is because i learned having radio as such an integral part of my life being an instructor of the medium and the history and everything of it for 10 years okay so i learned it pretty well myself and i understand that it's the theater of the mind 
You see, we're using these words, okay? Words are how we convey concepts to each other. Right and paint pictures. That's yeah, right. Paint pictures and with so, words, not with paint. That's you know? right. And everybody yeah. is hearing the same words, but you're conjuring up the picture in your own mind. Yeah, yeah. No, I see that. Okay. Very much, that's Roger. Why, and yeah. we've touched on it before. There's never been in the history of the industry a liberal lying network that worked. Because people can get lies. They can detect between lies and truth on radio, and you can't do it on video. No, you make a point about that, too. And I think, again, we'd mentioned this before, but it bears repeating that uh, not to say that Rush Limbaugh is a good man, not to say that he tells the truth, not to say that he's not working for the, the wrong people. I don't know. But I do know this. He fired up uh, uh, an element uh, through talk radio in America and in other places too, that theretofore hadn't been fired up. And what they heard was somebody telling them, putting into words what they were thinking, but they had never had uh, opportunity to take the time to develop the acumen of words to put it into words. So Rush Limbaugh put it into words, and then he gained a following because he told people what they were already thinking. But then the, the left said, wow, we got to do something. What are we going to do? We need somebody on the radio that can do what he does on our side. And they tried and tried and tried. And some very famous people tried to, uh, to initiate talk radio on the left. And it has never worked. It, was, it never will work. Yeah. But, it, and this, is, this applies, too, to what we call TV preachers. There's two kinds of communication in, the, in Christendom on uh, the media. There's Christian television, so-called Christian television. That's the, the Tammy Faye Baker crowd and TNN and uh, all that, uh, Roberts. But then there's also on the other side, there's Christian radio. And the two do not mix. In other words, I found out, I didn't know this till about 25 years ago, I was working at a church, working on the roof. We were, all us men got together and we were taking the roof off the church, put a new roof on. And it was an old building, very steep and very high, by the way. It was one of those old uh, buildings that had stained glass windows, and it was uh, the, the denomination that had used it long since disappeared. Well, the, some of the fellows that were there were of the charismatic element of Christianity. And um, I, I like to listen to certain people on Christian radio. And there was a R.C. Sproul was one of them I like to listen to. He's gone now. But I said, well, let's, let's just listen to this. I brought my radio up, and we put it on the on the roof and uh, we were listening and I said, uh, or people would say to me often, well, who is that guy? I never heard of that guy. And then somebody else come on and said, I never heard of that guy either. Fact was they didn't listen to Christian radio, but they were familiar to the nth degree with Christian television. That's the, the charismatic element. That's the emotional Christianity, uh, 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 Chris, uh, Christianity element, the Christodum, D-U-M-B, I like to call them, as yeah. opposed to D-O-M. There's a, there's a vast difference. And it comes down, again, to the difference between idolatry, idolatry and the discipline against it, which deals in words. That's the great chasm. Uh, the Bible is a book, a treatise, if you will. You can characterize it this way accurately. It's a treatise against idolatry at every point. That's the great danger. And to recognize what idolatry fundamentally is, to not have a mushy definition of it, to really know what it is, is to guard against it. Because there's nobody on, in the race of Adam, nobody, that has the power within themselves to resist idolatry. Uh, men love pretty things. That's why men love girls, by the way. But they love pretty things. They love 
pretty landscapes. They love fascinating pictures. And they're, because of our sin nature, we can get sucked off and do get sucked off real quick into liking things that God doesn't like, our maker doesn't like. That's why he forbids certain things to not be put in images and pictures. And then in the moving pictures. Go ahead, Roger. Wow, Brent. <laughs> Caught me with a cough here. Um, oh, well, the um, I thought maybe you were feeling guilty there, Roger. Or no, I, didn't I don't. Know. I, I, no, I hope not. Brent, you know. Well, why not? If you don't feel guilty, <laughs> if you don't feel guilty, you're going to guilt is to the soul and the, and the spirit. What pain is to the body. We yes, need guilt. It's the right. gift, Roger, that you're keeps right. on giving. For well, sure. The, our, Keeps you out our, of destruction. Well, Go ahead. Our Jewish adversaries make sure we got plenty of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you me, know, people do. Well, no, you go ahead. I'll I was just going to say, well, Chris, Chris joined us right here as we were getting started. I heard him grunt there a minute ago or something. How you doing, Chris? Well, I'm very well and always pleased and thrilled to hear Brent on the radio this morning put, uh, spreading this good news that he brings to the table and the truth of the word. Yep. I agree with that. Let me, uh, I had something on my plate I wanted to discuss with you guys. It came about yesterday, and it's had a little bit of an effect on me since yesterday, and that is one of our good old-time listeners, Eric, from up in the Tri-Cities area in Tennessee, called in and spent the day with us. Chris, you were with us yesterday. And um, he mentioned a couple of websites and a nine-volume series video a series that's just been released called Europa, The Last Battle. Do you remember that, Chris? Absolutely. Well, I, I got off the show yesterday, and Eric said he's going to send me the link to it. Well, before he could do it, another listener, our good listener Jimmy out there in Southern California, said, hey, man, you need to look at this, and he shot me the link to episode one. Well, I watched it yesterday. I, I didn't watch it at one setting. I couldn't get through it in one setting. Tell you the truth. A lot of it is graphic. And it just, you know, I, we've, we're, we've all been exposed to the atrocities, especially what I'm directly referring to here, the ones that happened in Soviet Russia after the revolution. But you keep hearing that over and over and over and you get exposed to it and it just makes your skin crawl. So a couple of times in there, I had to just shut it off and come back later. But I did finish it last night. Magnificent production. Um, extremely detailed factual information and extremely hard hitting. I'm gonna encourage everybody to sit down and delve into a little of this stuff. And as I said, now I just got through episode one last night and I'm about 30 something minutes into episode two today. There's nine of them and they're all about an hour long. And it concentrates primarily on the Zionist Bolsheviks and their background and etymology. And it's just something that I'm surprised it's on YouTube tell you the truth, I'm surprised I hadn't pulled it already, all right? But uh, therefore, with all the things that are happening in that area, with people being banned, shadow boxed, whatever the heck they're, they're doing all to them, you know, uh, I really would encourage y'all, I'll put the, the link to episode one up in our show description today on CastBox, but 
uh, it, it's a weekend project. I'll probably watch a, a few of these this weekend, but there's, it's a really well done production. And I want to thank Eric for bringing it to my and our attention and uh, Jimmy for sending me that link. Uh, pretty interesting stuff and very graphic, okay? Now, as it applies to all of our interests in why are our fellow countrymen in the condition they're in of not being receptive to anything. And in this last second episode, in the cover, in about, about 20, 25 minutes into it here, they had an interview with this KGB defector from about 20, 30 years ago. Y'all remember him, Chris? Uh, uh, and I don't remember his name, and I should have gotten it, but I got enthralled with what he was saying, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you, you remember that guy when he defected and did those interviews and stuff, and he was a KGB guy? Either Yuri Brezhnev Yes, yes, or him, him. It's, him. it's him. It's that first one, Yuri. And he's interviewed. Part of that interview is snipped in here. And he laid out and and it with some... Uh, with some augmented description on the four different, the whole thrust of their deal is a four-point program, okay? And it's got a name, and I don't remember what the name is. But the first was demoralization. The second is destabilization. The third is crisis. And the fourth is normalization. Those are the four stages. And he goes in and talks about it a bit descriptively. And the first stage, de moralization takes between 15 and 35 or 40 years and that's when they get a generation or two of kids and start indoctrinating them into this stuff and the next stage comes in destabilization and destabilization can happen in three to five years and that's when they come in and really upset your social your political uh, your defense systems all internally and the third is some sort of a crisis, and the fourth is, of course, when they normalize it in the way that they want to normalize it with them in control. But that is just a small snippet in this thing, just maybe five, seven, eight, ten minutes, okay? But this production, and again, it's Europa, E-U-R-O-P-A, here in the title, that's all in capital letters, E-U-R-O-P-A, the last battle and it's very interesting I encourage everybody to watch as much of it as you can stomach it may be a great tool for us to put in other people's hands because I went through all that to tell you this what he said is that when you get into that second stage, this first and the second stage, is they've got people so screwed up, they won't react to anything factual or anything else that you put in front of them that they've already basically got control of their minds at that point is what I took away from it. So, you know, and we discussed that here. Why are people so oblivious to all this and catatonic state and Pavlov, Pavlovian experiments and how they're implementing all that? But this was very valuable insight to me, and I wanted to talk about it today. Roger, I just looked at it, and then uh, one of our listeners sent to me a link for it and uh it, i'm not sure because i can't turn it on now it would make too much noise i was going to turn it on and find out who produced it and uh, this is produced by who exactly i do not know 
but well, I thought the, it's the, the narrator, the narrator's that, young, young, has a youngish voice. That's all I know. Youthful. Uh-huh. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and um, I thought maybe it came from a novel, but I'm not. I'll look into well, it. But I'm uh, going to tell you, whoever did this production in just the hour and thirty minutes or so I've watched of it, whoever did uh-huh. this production did an, not only a an incredible job, but b uh-huh. the research in this is phenomenal. Because every time they're telling you all this stuff that happened, and they're telling you the people involved, they got a snapshot of every one of them on there. And it says here, according to one of our listeners, whose name I won't mention, but we all know, he says the video is unavailable. The content is not available on this country domain, United Kingdom. So it's, and I noticed well, another fellow sent me a, the link to it, and he says, or yeah, he says here, uh, warning, the following content has, by identify, has been identified by the YouTube community as inappropriate or offensive to some audiences. I so can, we can get it here, yeah, but uh, over there they can't. They can't get it in, in England, huh? Right. Well, uh, you know, to, to, to know who rules over you, look to who you can't criticize. Well, the hour and a half I've seen so, for, so far pretty well revolves around this bunch right here. And I, that's why I said I don't, I'm, shock, I'm not shocked that they can't see it over there. I'm kind of shocked that you guys can still get it in the U.S. But I would say watch it. If you got an intention to watch it, watch it soon because I don't know how long it's going to be up there. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm anxious to look at it also, and I assume it's about the influence of Zionism in Europe. Well, the first one is all about Russia and the revolution and what happened over there. Oh, the second uh-huh. one is transferring that over into World War One and how those effects affected World War One. And that's I'm about halfway through that now. Mm. Well, you know, to get a foundation of this whole thing, a real solid foundation, it's been my experience, I pass it along for what it's worth, is to understand the relationship between Jesus Christ and his great antagonist, the Judiacs, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament. You, that becomes the focal point because the showdown between him and them is the, is the focal point of all of history. And then out of that, but before that, that's the focal point, the apex, but before that, there was a development that comes through uh, history up to it. And then from that, there is a, a history that comes down from it. Jesus Christ defeated Babylonian Judaism and all the other isms and schisms that we wish was wasms that ain't with us or that are <laughs> in, anymore. And they're all, they're, they're all from the same place, of course. Yep. They're all from Babylon, as the Bible says. And they're all fundamentally the same. Islam, Judaism, uh, Phariseeism is primarily uh, Judaism today. Islam, Judaism, and Romanism being the most salient, pronounced outstanding labels. But there are thousands of other labels, and it's all fundamentally the same thing. And it all comes down to the law of the city versus the law of the land. In other words, that's how it plays out. But that's not the substance of it. That's the fruit of it, the root of it, the substance. It comes down to uh, who do you worship? Who do you believe is worthy? Worship is the old Anglo word for worthyship. Worthyship. Who do you believe has worthyship? Is worthy of your time, your money, and your attention? Who, who's worthy? Are you worthy? Is um, uh, the leader of your country worthy? Do you have a professor you believe is worthy? Uh, wh- who? What other 
What other person or yourself or thing, created thing, astrology, the movements of the heavens, is that worthy of your time, attention, and your obedience? Uh, try to figure out how to be, be obedient to some created thing, or are, such as a man or an inanimate object, such as a Ouija board or astrology or, uh, or a, a fortune teller, or are you willing to be obedient, to, to learn and be obedient and give your attention to worship, worthyship? the maker of, of all things, heaven and earth, and all that in them is. That's the difference. And that spells the difference. That's the only difference. That's the grand difference. That's the controlling difference that divides all of humanity. And then out of that, our response back to whoever we deem has this worth, this worthyship, whoever we deem has it, then um, our response to that thing or person becomes our religion. It doesn't become a religion. It is our religion. And everybody has religion in that sense. That's what religion is fundamentally. It's the way the Bible defines it. That's the way all of ancient history has defined it. And whoever you have, you can talk politics from now to the blasted cows come home, or you can talk, you can talk philosophy. I hear people doing all those things, but if you don't get to the root, the problem, the root of the problem comes down to who is your lawgiver? Who do you deem worthyship to worship? And um, once that's decided, then the will or the perceived will of that thing or that person to whom that created, well, no, not a created thing, that uh, person to whom you deem worthyship, the will of that person is law. And your response to that will dictate the jo enjoyment you have out of life. You'll live in, in sewage and, and rottenness if you take anything for the, to deem worthy, uh, to have that worthyship, if you take anything to have it but the creator of heaven and earth and all that in them is, you will live in sewage and rottenness, and your life will become progressively more despairing, more ugly, even though you can't see it for a long time. You may think you've got it made. You may think everything's great. Uh, the evil empire and the minions of it will see to it that you have money. Oh, yeah, they'll see to it that you have drugs. Whatever sedates your guilt. We were talking about that a while ago. If you don't have guilt... Just remember, if you don't have guilt, you're dead. You're spiritually dead, and you're doomed. So God help us. We better be having a little guilt once in a while. That's what allows us to have enjoyment of life and makes us recoil from the things that will hurt us. They become, as the Bible says, abominable. For example, sodomy, says God, is abominable. Well, that's the English translation. What the word really means is it causes, it should, if it doesn't cause you to recoil in horror, well, then you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You're cut off from the life of God. You are cut off, and you're rotting, and you're dying. But if that does incense you, if, it, if you recoil against it as a horrid thing, that means you're alive. That's the difference. That's how you can tell. That's what the Bible says, how you can tell if you're spiritually dead or spiritually alive. And if you have that, and you say, well, you know, I'd rather just not think about it. I'd rather get away from it. I'd rather... Uh, have it out of sight and out of mind. There's nothing wrong with that. But remember, if you're not, then you'd mentioned this a while ago, the evil empire, what they want to do, of course, they, those useful idiots, really, they want to desensitize us to ugliness. Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, and it's by increments, increments, and measurements. Bill Clinton, more than anybody else in recent time, in an outstanding, viewable way, desensitized our children. Yep to oral sex. Yep. I'm telling you, I have talked to people that have suffered the despair that comes with that desensitization of that particular activity. And it's interesting that it was performed, uh, allegedly, by a Jewish girl 
who had been sent to the White House because that's where her family lives in power and politics. And then she ends up being, her, her life, uh, of course, is going to be increasingly despairing. But the useful idiots of the, of the evil empire has, have used a few other useful idiots, namely her and uh, Slick Willie, to, to desensitize all of our country to that stuff. Is that part of life? Yes. We had a fella, we, I say us Americans, had a, 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 a federal appellate judge. He was a Jewish fella. I don't know what significance there is. A lot of the other people figure that out, but he's chief justice of the Ninth Circuit of the Federal Appellate Court, and he got caught with uh, oh, pornography yeah. on his computer. Well, they said, well, what are we going to do with this guy? Truth is, there's some pornography cases. He, they're in front of him right now. Well, they forced him to recuse himself, slapped him on the wrist, and let him go. But his comment was this. His comment was, well, this is, this is life. This is what life is about. It's about perversion. Well, yeah, no kidding, Buster. Does that mean you're supposed to wallow in it like a pig and get everybody else to make you feel good about it and, and wallow in it with you? Martin Luther put it this way. Martin, and then I'll quit. Martin Luther said, I see the birds flying overhead. I like to watch them. They're beautiful. But he said, I don't let them nest in my hair. That's the difference. <laughs> I see beautiful girls sometimes, but I'm careful. With all Beautiful girls are dangerous. Uh, dangerous in a lot of ways, and they don't even know if they may, they may be nice girls. But I don't want them to nest in my hair. That means Luther, by analogy, was saying, I don't want them to stick in my mind. I move on. I've got business to tend to. Yeah. And there's things that have to be done. And the, all of what God gives us is for our enjoyment, given its proper context. Period. End of paragraph. End of sentence. And if it's not kept to its proper context, for example, the law of the city is for our good if it is confined to its proper context, namely armies on fields of battle, ships on the high seas, the maritime law, and the martial law. But you take that maritime martial time type of law and you apply it to folk that are not on the high seas and are not in military forces, you've got tyranny. And that's what the evil empire wants to do, move us to tyranny, desensitize us, as you had mentioned, and that's what's happening. Go ahead, and, Roger. And murder you by the millions. It comes to that. It comes to that ugliness, and I, we see it. I'm telling yeah. you, the, the stuff that's in that episode, one of that thing is going to curl some of your fingernails. Well, I, I hope so. Do what, Chris? A postscript to Brent's soliloquy there. Uh, it's worthy of note that Miss Lewinsky, Monica, the blue dress wearer, was a rabbi's daughter, uh, specifically. Oh. And it's not without uh, recollection that she may have been sent to uh, oh, be an accommodation no, a, party. Uh, for Mr. That was a Mossad operation all the way. You know, well, she had the same clearance that I had, a Q clearance with a TSSBI endorsement. Oh, that'll make you feel safe. You well, know, there are... Yeah, Brent, right hold on. I'm just going to make yeah. this comment. I mean, yesterday, some of this stuff came up yesterday. It's funny. Remember that Vietnam War was the first war that was brought to the dinner table? Yep. Well, this was the first time oral sex was brought to the dinner table. You had and, mentioned that on the radio the other day, Roger. I, I was listening when you said that. And, That's and, true. And, and yeah. I, you know, it made a demonstrable change in the attitude of the country. 
I mean, uh, I'm, I was cognizant of it at the time when it was happening. I also wanted to add in what you were saying earlier on, especially with us doing these programs, if we've had a seminal moment in the four years we've been doing these programs, for me, I'm talking about for me personally, was when we got into that discussion that day and the word Corban came up and you went back to, well, let me see what I wrote about it in my study Bible. And you go read your footnotes. And there yeah. it is, the whole answer's right there. And see, I didn't have that back then. I didn't have the understanding that it's the same exact bunch just replicating the same exact thing. Okay. Oh, no question. Now, I see. Yeah, now, now I've, come, I've found out some interesting information because I'm always trying to time date things because I like timelines and to see how they develop. And so one of the a little nugget that came, I don't know, within the last few weeks uh, in an article somewhere, uh, do you know when Reform Judaism was founded? No, not precisely. Roger, go ahead. 1827. Okay. So they had the plans back then, and I just saw something on this Europa about uh, uh, when they were uh, actually controlling some of Palestine was in 1829. So they founded Reform Judaism. What is Reform Judaism? What what is Reform Judaism, Brent? Well, I'm, I'm anxious to hear your definition. I'm not sure I know well, where you're going, so I want to go okay. ahead. Well, the traditional Jewish doctrine from the Torah is that uh -huh. if they pray and do everything right, pray three times a day, and this, this is the Messiah will come. Oh, uh-huh. What Reform Judaism did was flip that, and they forced all this agenda in there to be their own Messiah. That's oh, why, no, that's true. I see your point. Yeah, okay. that's where you're going. That's yes. why you yes. get people like Stephen Wise, who was the big Zionist rabbi in the 30s and 40s, uh -huh. and his statement is the Jewish people are their own Messiah. This is Reform yeah. Judaism. Okay. I get it. I get it. Uh -huh. All right. Yeah, and, no. and, and that uh -huh. time frame, then at that point, along in that very time range is when I know they came up with this plan on the 14th Amendment. And that led up to the causation of the Civil War and everything that's flowed since. But it looks like to me that that change of overcoming the old Judaism, of bringing in the new Reform Judaism where they're their own messiahs, they come in and institute these programs and they control the world. They murder off a whole bunch of us and the rest of them are, are uh, of us that are left are their servants. I see. I mean, it's exactly, exactly what's going on. I see that, too. Now, I want to hasten to add, and this is a personal conviction, uh, just having looked at it and experienced it from different directions for years, that uh, Judaism, Babylon, it's Babylonian Judaism, that was the great antagonist of uh, Jesus Christ as a prototype of all false religion, a prototype. In other words, the... Um, the um, there are many false religions under well that's all the same false religion under different labels, but I I like to say also some people say for example the fundamental Baptists say oh it's the Roman Catholics it's the Roman Catholics it's those guys they're causing they're the, that's the evil empire they're the spearhead and they love as a group anyway they love Zionism 
And then there are those that say, no, 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 no. It's, it's, the, it's the Jews. It's Zionism. That's what's the, the evil empire. That's the ones that are forming the spearhead of evil in the world. And then other people say, oh, no, 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 no. It's Islam. They're the ones that are forming. They're the ones that... And I like to say, and this is from my study of how it all developed, for what it's worth, I don't know everything, and I know I never will, but this is what I've put together, that uh, all three of those form the spearhead and they've done it together they arose together at the same time in history and i think there's good indication that the founders uh, the, the modern founders of those three movements all knew each other if they didn't know each other they knew very well the the the, um, the presence of each other and they worked together in a conspiracy if you will yes that means that they knew if i do this uh, uh, saint thomas aquinas was the leader the one that gave us modern Romanism. He was the scholastic, and the, his writings are now the official writings of the Roman Church. He was in the Middle Ages. He lived at the same time of Averroes, who was an Islamic sage from northern Africa, and those two lived at the same time of Mohammedes, the 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 father of modern Judaism. He was in Europe. He's considered now, to be Ab- the greatest of all rabbis, that guy right there, Mohammedes. Yes. Well, here's what happened. Um, logic. Greek logic and the fascination with the Greeks and all that, Averroes, the Islamic sage, picked up on it, and he applied it to Islam. Because Islam, before that, didn't amount to nothing but a pile of manure. I mean, it was just a whole lot of junk written on pieces of leather and old shoe sandals and pottery that Muhammad would go into these ecstatic, out-of-body experiences, write stuff down when he spent a long time in a cave or what. And, and, and if you read some of the writings, you realize it's just a jumble of nothingness of stories taken out of the Bible and slammed together end to end and the context is off. Well, he took Greek logic and applied that from the writings of the Greeks. He discovered Plato and Aristotle. He introduced those then. It was introduced to Europe through two channels. Uh, St. Tom, well, it's called St. Thomas. I just call him Tom Aquinas. Thomism. Is what he's, he wrote his writings and he extolled the Greeks and he tried to apply logic to theology of, 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 the, of, of Romanism. And then Mohammedes did the same thing, and we call it today scholasticism. As a matter of fact, Mohammedes said uh, Babylonian Judaism is nothing but scholasticism. It is scholasticism. It is the worship of logic. The worship of the human mind came through uh, North Africa into Europe through those two men. They all three lived at the same time, and those were the founders of the directions of those three modern religions. And it happened all about the same time, by the way, of Magna Carta and the three groups of people that the landowners of England complained about in Magna Carta were the, the Islamic Sultan of Morocco, the Pope of Rome, and the Jewish moneylenders of England. And John, uh, King John, the one that was forced to sign, the landowners forced him to sign Magna Carta, he was hocked up to the ears and promises to all three of those men to give, and then the moneylenders in, in England, the Jewish moneylenders, to give all of England as a fife, a fee, uh, an ownership to those three groups of people. And that's when the landowners of England rose up and said, holy mackerel, we can take a lot, but this has got to stop. And they formed an army, and they said no more. Magna Carta was drafted. It was signed. The Pope of Rome excommunicated anybody that signed Magna Carta because Rome wanted all of England. The Jewish moneylenders wanted all of England and did have them enslaved entirely at that point in debt. And Magna Carta says these things. And then the Islamic uh, Sultan of Morocco uh, had told King John he would loan him all the money, the gold and silver he needed to raise an army to fight the land barons if 
he would make all of England Islamic. And Rome said, if, we'll give you all the money you need, King John, to fight the landowners, if you will give all of England the lands and the people as ownership to the Pope of Rome. And the Jewish moneylenders had loaned him a lot of money, hocked him up to his ears. He owed them, and they knew just by that act of, of usury that they did own all England. And that's what sparked Magna Carta. And it is amazing, as it says in our Declaration of 76, that men will tolerate a whole lot of abuses for a long time, as long as such abuses are tolerable. But there reaches a point, and that's what Magna Carta was. It was the, the, the blowing up point. They couldn't deal with it anymore. I see us moving in that direction yeah, here. And if we have in, any nope. Christian sensibilities, it takes Christian sensibilities because you're dealing with false demonic religion, Islam, Judaism, and Romanism. Back to you, Roger. That day is coming. It, it is. It will. It'll have to. It always has. History, it's unfailing in history that that day comes. But we do put up with a lot. And if what? And the evil empire is not stupid. They know through experience and the minions of them, they're really all following the adversary himself, the great adversary, Satan. And they know, they know that in history, he knows that, that if he doesn't get a critical mass of folk that follow him in a country, that it won't work. There will be a blow-up. There will be a showdown. There has to be. We've been through many in our, our forebears, and the folks that went before us even over in the older countries of Europe, they went through this. Do you think? Of course not. We're not going to go through it. We have gone through it. We will continue to go through it, and it's up to us to be ready and to stand fast, not to be fearful, not to be afraid, because the truth is, as Jesus Christ made clear, we do not fight for victory. We fight in victory. He, had, he told the Israelites, he said, okay, I got you out of Egypt now. Now I'm giving you the land deed to this land up here. Uh, it's yours. All you got to do is walk in, take it. Well, they, they panicked. They fe fearfully, they freaked out. Only two of the 601,550 militiamen that had been counted, only two did not, uh, did not recoil in fear from what they had to face up in Canaan. And they were eight days out of Egypt, eight or nine days, I forget, right to the border. And they, they backed up. They got afraid. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, who, Caleb, by the way, was not an Israelite. He, he was a foreigner. But he had assimilated into the country, uh, into the people of God. And uh, he said, uh, they said, Joshua, Joshua and Caleb said, we can take it. We can take it. This is not a problem. 